GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. It's actually written on the wall there. You may have seen that uh, as you came in. If it's written on a wall, that means we really should pay attention to it. It's important. It's not just filler or space, and so we endeavor to do that. And as we gather here corporately, a big part of uh, what it is we're doing here week in and week out on Sundays is that we uh, create some time and space to really hear from God, to listen to God in his word as he speaks to us. And so if you're uh, maybe new or newer to GCF, we're in a series in the book of Mark. I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Mark chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, that's all you need to know really, (laughs) for our purposes this morning at least, second book of the New Testament, the words will be up on the screen Uh, behind me. As you're turning there, just a reminder, we have a newcomer's lunch right after our service here today, and that's going to be in Fellowship Hall. Uh, And so some of you have already signed up for that, which is wonderful. If you're here this morning and you consider yourself newer to GCF, I would love to invite you. This is your personal invitation. You don't have to sign up. We have plenty of food. So again, if you showed up here thinking, man, I'm already hungry, and the sermon hasn't even started yet, just Push through, and we will feed you. It's super informal. You're going to walk out with a book. Uh, So about 12 noon, right in Fellowship Hall, uh, we'd love to have you there. If you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 6, looking at verse 14 through verse 29. Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said... John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I'm beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and His guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me as I pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, once again, we come to you in this moment not out of mere habit or even out of custom, but we come to you asking genuinely 
from our hearts that you would help us. Lord, we need your help this day. I need your help as a preacher that I would decrease and Christ would increase. We need your help as your people that we would have ears to hear, not just let words go in and out, not to be distracted by other things, but that we would have ears to hear you teaching us what we, in fact, need to know. And yes, what you would speak to us, what we need to hear, because we do need to hear from you, Lord. So speak, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There are certain passages of the Bible that when you read them, they're actually pretty enjoyable to read. They probably contain verses that are immediately edifying, uplifting. It's probably in those certain passages that you may find your go-to verse, or if you have a life verse, it's probably in one of those portions of Scripture. It's maybe easy to memorize, and, and it's actually really easy to remember, and you do remember it for maybe years. And then there are certain passages in our Bibles where the more that you read them, the less you want to remember. Because the more that you dig deeper and the more you actually understand and have a better understanding and grasp of what really is going on, the more questions you have, and perhaps the more you struggle to make sense of it all. Our text here in Mark chapter six is that kind of passage. It's dark, it's evil, it's sinister, it's perverse, it's wicked, and it's vile. And so the more I studied it, the less I wanted to preach it. Not because it's not God's word, and not because there's, there's not really some important lessons that we need to learn here, but because it's dark, evil, sinister, perverse, wicked, and vile. It seems almost, almost irredeemable. This is actually the second of only two passages in the entire book of Mark that don't even talk about Jesus. They're not about Jesus. The first one is actually Mark chapter one, verses three through eight, where we're introduced to this man, John the Baptist, and this one here in Mark 6 tells us of his untimely death. And Jesus is hardly mentioned at all in this text. And so, just as you're reading your Bibles, when you come along passages and you think, man, Jesus is not mentioned there at all, I don't think there's any allusion to Jesus, it's really hard to see, is, is his work anywhere in here? That's probably an indication that it's going to get dark and evil pretty fast. And so you may be wondering, well, why even preach on this at all? Like, why not just skip over this text, Brinkman? Well, I'll do that for a number of reasons. Number one, one of the core commitments here at GCF is that we preach through whole books of the Bible. We want to hear the whole counsel of God's word. And so what that means is typically we're going to start in Mark chapter 1 and we're going to go all the way through, verse after verse, section after section. So if you ever wonder, I wonder what the sermon is going to be about next week, just keep reading. And it's a miracle. So if you like miracles, I hope you come back. But that keeps me honest as a preacher and you honest as an engaged listener. Integrity demands that we're not gonna skip over hard text or blatantly evil text and only talk about good things or happy things or nice things. And so if you're here this morning and perhaps you're here and you're, you're still trying to put the pieces together, you're still, you have questions about Jesus, you're, you're wondering about the gospel, I hope at the very least that you can leave here this morning knowing that this is a place where they're gonna wrestle with some hard text. They're gonna do justice to God's word. Here's the second reason. 
This passage is actually far more contemporary and relevant to our lives than maybe at first glance. Yes, it was written thousands of years ago, but let's be honest, this sort of incident, this sort of story could easily have been ripped from the headlines of any major capital city in the world and covered by any major news outlet today. Because this is the world that we inhabit. It's dark and evil and vile. And it can seem at times as if it's almost, almost irredeemable. Yet it's not a world without hope. So we need to take seriously what it is, in fact, we read here. And what it is that we as disciples of Jesus, as sent ones, are supposed to learn so that we can be faithful in our calling to serve and minister in the name of Jesus and be representatives of Jesus, proclaimers of the good news of the gospel. Now, there are a whole lot of details here in this text, and the vast majority of them are ugly. The Bible treats the ugliness of human sin as it really is. It's ugly. Like, there's no soft side to human sin. There's no There's no sort of smooth out the rough edges. There never has been, there never will be, not with your sin or not with mine. And so there is a lot of human sin in this text, which means then that there is a whole lot of human suffering as well. And so for the sake of clarity, I want us to look at this story through the main characters as Mark presents them to us. And I want you to get right at the outset here really the main point of this story. This is what Jesus wanted his disciples to know. This is what Mark wanted his readers to know. And and this is what we need to know as disciples of Jesus. And here it is. You and I cannot follow Jesus faithfully without the real risk of suffering. You and I cannot be faithful to Jesus in our calling as his disciples, as his representatives on this earth, without the real risk and, frankly, the real reality of suffering. Loving Jesus doesn't always mean that we're going to be equally loved. Following Jesus as his disciples may not always end well, at least on this earth. Sometimes, as I believe it was Billy Joel who sang, what, 40 years ago, sometimes the good do die young far too young. And yes, sometimes the wicked prosper, at least for a time. Uh, Speaking of wicked, meet Herod. He's, by all accounts, probably the main character in this story. The Herod we read about here in Mark chapter 6 was Herod Antipas. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great. If that name is starting to ring a bell, well, Herod the Great ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., and he was as evil and wicked as they come. You might remember Herod the Great was the king who tried to kill Jesus, and really uh, he issued a decree when Jesus was born, all boys in Bethlehem, two years and under, were to be put to death. That's that Herod. When, When he died, his kingdom was separated then into four main territories, and the allotments were given to his sons. Now, Herod had a lot of sons to choose from because he had a lot of wives. And so like his father, this Herod here, in Mark chapter 6, he was a very shrewd tyrant. He was more interested in building magnificent buildings, which he did. He was surrounded by immense wealth, which he had. 
He denied himself no pleasures or luxuries that he wanted, which he definitely indulged. Consequences? What consequences? Herod did as Herod desired, and so he took Herodias to be his wife. Herodias was the daughter of Herod's half-brother, Aristobulus, which made Herodias his niece. She was also the wife of another one of his half-brothers, Herod Philip, and that guy's still alive, which made Herodias his sister-in-law. I mean, that's just awkward at family reunions. It's beyond that. This is a very twisted family tree. It's twisted and perverted, not only by intermarriage, but by evil. I mean, Herod's marriage to Herodias was both illegal, according to Leviticus 18.16, but it was also incestuous. It's just ugly. His sin is ugly. My sin is ugly. Your sin is ugly. And that's the backdrop to what we read here verses 14 through 16. King Herod hears about Jesus. He hears about his band of disciples. He hears that they're, they're, they're preaching and teaching about the need to repent and to turn to God in sincere faith. And Herod is trying to figure out what's the word on the street? What's going on right underneath my nose? And so the speculation runs rampant. Is this the work of Elijah, he thinks? Maybe it's a different prophet. Could it be John the Baptist, that guy that I had beheaded? Could it be that that guy is now risen from the dead? And as crazy and insane as that sounds, that's actually what he settles on. Verse 16, yeah, it must be him. It's got to be John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead to torment me, to haunt me, to, to get even with me. So when you hear stuff like that, like we read that and we think, man, what is going on there? That is twisted. But that is, in fact, the inner dialogue of a sadistic madman. And what we have here then, brothers and sisters, from verse 17 through verse 29, well, we have a flashback. It's as if Herod is sitting in his palace and he's staring out the window and he is replaying in his mind all the sordid events that led, in fact, to that scene, led to the beheading of John the Baptist. And he's terrified. He's haunted by those memories. His guilty conscience is beginning to work overtime. And so the picture we get here of mighty King Herod, well, he's actually not so mighty. He's actually not even a king. He's a tetrarch, incidental to our story this morning. But the picture we get of this mighty King Herod is actually one of contradiction and one of cowardice. Contradiction and cowardice. He's actually a pathetic example of a man. Herod ordered John to be put in prison. Why? Well, because John told him his marriage to Herodias was a sham, it was a fraud, it was sinful, it was a breach of God's law, and it was morally wicked. Yet, look with me at verse 20. Herod feared John. In other words, Herod knew that John was holy. He knew that he was upright. John was probably the only guy alive that was actually going to tell Herod the truth. Nobody dared do that to Herod. And so Herod actually liked talking to John. But he's this walking mess of contradictions. 
So on the one hand, he puts John in danger. He puts him in prison. But then he keeps him safe in prison from his wife. We'll look at her in just a moment. Herod enjoys. He relishes conversations with John. He's listening to him. He's engaged with him, but yet he's, he's so conflicted. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to respond. So Herod's got all this power. He's got all this might. He's got, he's got servants to do his bidding, yet he's anxious and insecure and weak. He's a bully and a coward at the same time. And in his weakness and in his depravity, verse 23, Herod eventually gives the order to kill John, to take his head off. He can't break his oath to a room full of powerful people. But, but yet in verse 26, he's sorry about it. He's sorry. Contradiction and cowardice. I mean, Herod made the decision to appease his wife and his dinner guests rather than save John. He'd rather save face than save John's head. Disappoint your wife or disappoint a guy you personally like and even admire and respect. Herod proves himself to be a weak coward. He saves face and has John killed. And that's ugly. That's ugly. Oftentimes, brothers and sisters, in human history, human history really does bear this out. Evil men are not just those who seem hell-bent on destroying others. Evil men are not just those with a powerful army that march in and just conquer villages and destroy and everything and obliterate people. We can easily forget that sometimes the most evil men and women on the planet are cowards. They know what's right, but they, don't, they can't do it. They're, they're a walking mess of contradictions. Their conscience is sullied. Their conscience is always in turmoil. The truth is right in front of them, but yet they don't bring themselves to do that. And on this note, I think every one of us here can relate. Now, I know none of us here want to think that we have anything in common with a guy like King Herod. I get that. But where do you see that contradiction? Even in your own life. I mean, have you ever said something and then done the complete opposite? Have you ever made a commitment to someone and then in the next breath you, you break that? Do you know what it's like to save face with the group of people that you deem important in the moment, even if you know it's wrong and the truth is staring at you right in front of the face? Have you ever played the part of the coward, shrinking back from doing what is right, saying what is right, Maybe try and maneuver circumstances to try and figure out how you can still come off looking better than you are. And you're just left with a guilty conscience. It's no less ugly when we see it in Herod than when we see this kind of turmoil and conflict and even cowardice in our own lives and in our own hearts. So what do you do about it? What are you going to do with that conflict or the, the compromise that maybe you're already sensing in your own heart? I can tell you what not to do with it. And that's what Herodias does in our text. Herodias is something. She is something not good. She's about as far away from the Proverbs 31 woman as you can get. She's like the Proverbs 666 woman. <laughs> she is a vengeful manipulator. She is conniving. She is ruthless. And according to verse 19, she's, she's got a grudge against John the Baptist. 
and she wants to kill him. Now, what's her beef with John? What possibly could John have done to cause this? Well, John kept telling Herod, it's against the law for you to be married to this woman, to her. Literally, the text says in Greek, John would not shut up. Every opportunity he got, he's telling the royal couple here that this is wrong, this marriage is wrong, this is wicked, it's against God, and it's incestuous. Now, if you're a friend of John the Baptist, maybe you're just getting together, you're catching up over coffee that week, don't you think you're kind of saying, uh, John, man, just stop talking. Just go under the radar. Just let it pass. I mean, John, you start talking about the king and his wife and this mayor. You start getting the king. You know this king. It's not going to go well for you, John. Just quiet. But John could not let it go. And clearly, when you rebuke people for sin, not everyone is going to say thanks. I mean, if they do, it's actually proof that the Holy Spirit is in operation in their life. It's proof that the Holy Spirit has, is really is, is softening their hearts. There's a humility there that they will respond and say, you know what, yeah, you're right. But some people, when confronted, and I'm talking here about clear, blatant sin against God, some people will not budge, and you will see a stubbornness and a vindictiveness that, in fact, may shock you. But doesn't, doesn't your own stubbornness and willingness to hold on to your favorite sins, even when you know the truth. Doesn't that shock you sometimes? It should. Herodias doesn't respond very well to John, to his constant rebuke and calling out sin to her, and the Bible says this enraged her, and it, we, we find then that she nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Brothers and sisters, do you know what happens when you begin to nurse a grudge against another person? You get ugly. You get ugly. The kind of ugly that says, I'm going to hatch a plan, and I'm going to take matters into my own hands here, and I'm going to seek to manipulate my husband, and I'm going to kill this guy. That's her goal. That's her ambition, and uh, we certainly are led to believe that Nothing is going to stand in her way. Oh, she will succeed. That's what happens when you begin to nurse a grudge against another person. When you begin to, to feed it and you indulge it, it will eat you up and it really will consume your life. Somebody wrongs you and you remember that a year later or two years later or five years later or ten years later. And I'm not talking here, brothers and sisters, about a prolonged neglect or even abuse or something where you're supposed to just move on. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just talking about when, when someone confronts you with the truth and in your spirit, you know that what they're saying is true, and yet as soon as you walk away, you're looking at ways to get revenge. You start nursing that grudge. That subtly, almost imperceptibly, that turns you into a monster. So if you're nursing a grudge here, against somebody else, and you know you've been feeding it, and it's been consuming your life, it's time to repent. It's time to turn from that and, and to throw it on Jesus. He, he's the one that can actually help. 
You and I, we, we can't control these grudges on our own. We like to think we can, and so we take all kinds of steps. We can't. We have to give it to him. He, he has the, the mercy and the grace to carry it and deliver you from ruining more of your life and probably the lives of those around you. So confess your sins. Confess that before Christ. He loves to forgive. He has sufficient grace for all of our grudges. Herodias determines to handle her own business, which means this story gets even a little bit uglier. She's so desperate for revenge and vindication that now she's going to involve her young daughter in a plot to carry out this grudge that she has been feeding. Now, we're not told the name of her daughter here, but the Jewish historian Josephus says that her name is Salome, so we'll call her Salome. Josephus doesn't lie. Salome is a young girl. It's interesting that the same word here in the Greek for girl is the same word that we read in Mark chapter 5 to describe Jairus' daughter who was 12 at the time. So, so we know here that She's very young, 12, 13, maybe 14, that's it. Now, there is enough blame and sin to go around here, of course. Think of her mother, Herodias, not a nice lady. So a plan is hatched between mother and daughter here. They're just waiting for an opportunity, and they finally get that opportunity at Herod's birthday party. And so Salome, verse 22 She's dancing before Herod and a group of prominent men. Scholars agree that these sorts of dances were typically done by prostitutes. So this is an erotic dance. She's using her sensuality to gain control. And the plan worked. Because King Herod is willing to give her anything that she asked for. Just name it and he'll claim it. Well, Salome runs out consults with her mother. Are we surprised at all at what happens next? And her mom says, I want John dead. Really, I want John's head. Basically, she's saying, kill him. This is the opportunity. And so daughter runs back to Herod. And notice what she says in verse 25. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter on a platter. I mean, it's not enough simply to kill the guy, I guess. I want his head on a platter. I mean, that is disturbing. That's, that is ugly. Now, her mom, again, no saint, she seems to be content just to kill John. But Salome wants his head on a platter. Now, again, this whole scene, church, is so very sad. It's so twisted Obviously, we're not told the inner dynamic of the mother-daughter relationship there. But the whole family tree going back generations is so wicked and perverse that we can safely assume the mother-daughter dynamic is actually not very good. At the very least, this young girl seems willing to play the game. Now, whatever her motives were, and we're all mixed bags, obviously, walking contradictions, whatever the pressures exerted on her, she is old enough to gain control of a king and a bunch of drunk men by dancing erotically in front of them. She's old enough to conspire and carry out a plan to execute a man. She's old enough to actually ask for his head on a platter. Her idea. 
So she's old enough to be responsible for her actions. In other words, peer pressure. Peer pressure is not an excuse. And in this case, mother's pressure is not an excuse. Now let me just say a word here, and I can see several of you. T teenage girls, I have, I have two of you and another one. Well, she's not on the way. That sounds... There's no announcement here. <laughs> there will never be an announcement. Another teenage girl soon. Three. Listen, if you're a teenage girl here, man, there, there, are, there are pressures on you every single day. Pressures that your mom didn't have to face. It's not, I mean, you're growing up in a world where it's not enough anymore to be known by your family and to be known by your friends and maybe a few close others, but now, it, like, you have to be known by everybody on social media. And, 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 like, you're missing out. If you're not a social media influencer, if you're not a YouTube star, there's pressure to conform, there's pressure to perform, there's pressure, all kinds of pressure to take your cues from what the world says who you're supposed to be. And the world says, well, man, you're missing out, girls, and you're just not enough. And I just want to say to you, that's why the gospel is so sweet. Because the gospel says, you are enough in Christ. You are enough in Christ. Because the gospel says Jesus is the one who died for you. And the one who was raised to life for you. You're going to find your life in him. So you don't have to take your cues from what's popular in the world around. But if you put your faith in Christ, you are enough. And in your weakness, he's strong. And so make it your desire to worship him and you will find your life, which means don't give an inch. Do not compromise. Not even an inch. And look, you, it's not just teenage girls who face peer pressure. We know the world we live in. It's called being human, and it's called having human relationships and friendships. Every one of us does. I mean, have you ever said something and done something because you're maybe trying to impress this person here? They're, they're listening, and then immediately you think, oh, why did I do that? Why did I do that? You ever acted in certain ways, and then not long after you regretted saying what you said, doing what you did? Of, of course you have. I mean, this whole scene gets repeated so often, over and over again, in boardrooms, in living rooms, in soccer fields, in social clubs, I mean, minus the beheading part, which I think we're thankful for. But the fact that it just happens over and over again doesn't make it any less ugly. It's still ugly because sin is ugly in all of its forms. And isn't it ironic, church, that all of this evil and vile that we're reading about here, it happens at a birthday party. It's Herod's birthday party, verse 21. And Herod makes sure that all the important people, men, are there. So we have a group of men here. It's composed of nobles, military commanders, and leaders. It's an all-male party. It's basically a frat party. So what does a weak but rich tyrant do when throwing a party like this? Well, there's going to be a lot of alcohol, there's going to be a lot of women, and there's going to be a lot of dancing. So we have the perfect storm here. And we should not assume that Salome was the only girl dancing here, not at all. You have a bunch of drunk guys wanting to be entertained, partying with sensual girls who want to be desired. It's ugly. Herod thinks these guys just need to be appeased. And these men are thinking just keep the drinks coming and the girls dancing because we just want to be entertained. We're just here to blow off some steam. 
that's ugly. Guys, it may not be a word to you guys. Maybe it's not pornography that's tripping you up. You got internet blockers, you got accountability partners. And if you don't, you need to. But if, if that's not the concern, that, that's good. But it may be coarse joking. And it may be just crass comments that you spend far too much time laughing at. It may be just streaming shows that have enough innuendos in them that you're just, you're, you're glued to it. It's like there's this magical force comes over and you just keep watching. I get it. That's, that's ugly. I mean, you're, you turn into an animal. And up to this point in this passage, we're seeing how dark and ugly it is because we have a conflicted, cowardly king who wants to look good in front of others, even if it cost a man his life. We have an evil and manipulative wife who's nursing a grudge because she can't really bear to handle the truth. We have a complicit teenage girl carrying out a murderous plot. We have a, a bunch of drunk men here who are satisfying their animal desires. It's ugly. And even though we hear that and inwardly, you just, you, we might recoil at that and think, man, why is this even in the Bible? We gotta be honest. We have that same ugliness pulsating in our hearts. And we're so easily tempted to shrink back in fear from saying the right thing or doing the right thing in order to save face. We, we actually do care more about that person next to me than doing what is right. We can easily begin to nurse a grudge or two or three or 10 when we're told the truth and we actually don't really like it? Can we manipulate another person into doing what we really want them to do so that it might draw attention to them or to us? Yeah. Our hearts can be attracted and enslaved to all kinds of wrong things that we're entertained by. I mean, it's all very ugly. And so you may recall at the beginning of the sermon, I said, well, this text was almost, almost irredeemable amidst a whole lot of evil and ugly, we do here get a glimpse of the truly good, of the truly beautiful in the, in the character and ministry of John the Baptist. Nobody names their newborn boys Herod these days for obvious reasons, but millions bear the name John. Jesus esteemed this John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11 Verse 11, Jesus said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater, no one greater than John the Baptist. Remember, this is the same John that we read about in Mark chapter 1. At the height of his popularity, the, the, the crowds were coming in on John. This would have been the time. John, this is your 15 minutes of fame. What are you going to do? John says, don't be enamored with me. After me comes one who's mightier than I. The strap of those sandals, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is the same John that we read in John chapter three, verse three, said, he, Jesus, must increase. That means I gotta decrease. So the life and ministry of John the Baptist, brothers and sisters, was, was, was really a life of pointing ahead, of of helping people see that the true Messiah had come in Jesus Christ, and he's the one that you should be worshiping. He's the one that you're to live your life for. He's the one that you are to trust. 
John was the great messenger pointing to the great Savior. And John, this John the Baptist here, he died in his early 30s, never performed a miracle. His earthly ministry lasted about one year, and then he was thrown into prison and beheaded. Yet it's, things are not always as they seem, because according to Jesus, no one was greater. No one was greater than John. So what do we make of that? Well, the righteous do indeed suffer. Sometimes the good die young. Sometimes it doesn't end well, at least from a human perspective, for the servants of God. The good guys will not always win every skirmish or be spared every trial or heartache. You and I cannot follow Jesus faithfully without the very real risk of suffering. We really can't be truly good in this world apart from the reality of suffering in some way for the sake of Christ. Now, that suffering may take all kinds of forms, and it does in our world. That can be ridicule. It could be the silent treatment. It could be ostracism. Yes, it could involve losing a job, losing a friend, losing a relationship, losing your life. We must be willing to, we have to be people who are going to speak the truth and face the consequences, as John the Baptist did, and certainly as our Savior did. So yes, when we're thinking about being sent out and serving and ministering, when we think about our, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, it means that we're really willing to obey Jesus and count the cost, perhaps suffer as a result. So indeed, it's a steep cost. The cost of following Jesus, the cost of being his disciple, it is steep. It may cost you your life, as it did for John. Jesus says, come to me, give me everything, and then trust me for what comes next. That's a cost. But what of the cost of not following Jesus? What if you say, no, I don't, that is far too much of a cost. I can't get there. Well, that actually has a cost too. The cost of turning away from Jesus, of forsaking Jesus, at least in this life. Now, obviously, there's a cost for all eternity. But there's a cost of not following Jesus faithfully here as well. And that's a cost that you and I, brothers and sisters, must weigh carefully Dallas Willard wrote this. Words will be up on the screen. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's good, overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly the abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring, John 10. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. So the correct perspective is to see following Christ not only as the necessity it is, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and as life on the highest plane. 
being a disciple, following Christ. That's life on the highest plane. That sounds pretty good right about now, doesn't it? I want to live. Who doesn't want to live life in that way on the highest plane? But we need to understand that that life is not immune from suffering in this life. A good man suffered and died with John's death, verse 27. John the Baptist's death, in fact, is a good example. But brothers and sisters, Jesus' death is the good news. His death is the good news. John's death pointed to a greater sacrifice and a greater death. I mean, Jesus died on the cross at the hands of people who did not love the truth, who had no ounce of goodness in them, had no sense of justice, their own morals darkened by their futility and spiritual blindness and folly. I mean, Jesus died at the hands of spiritually ugly people for spiritually ugly people, but he died as God. He died as God. He died as our substitute, our representative, in our place. So all the things that separated us from God, our ungodly fears, our cowardice, our grudges, our disordered desires, our sinful actions, all the consequences were laid on him that we deserved. And so when you put your trust in him, then you share in his victory over evil and sin and injustice. That's why the gospel is such good news. Because the gospel says that Jesus has come and he dies for all of who you are. All your ugliness and sins and inner contradictions. He died on the cross for all of who you are. And if he died on the cross for all of who you are and he has now risen to resurrection life, it's not just your time that belongs to him. It's not just your mind that belongs to him. It's not just your body that belongs to him. It's not just your sexuality that belongs to him. It's not just your kids that belong to him. It's not just your hobbies that belong to him. It's not just your gifts and abilities that belong to him. Everything belongs to him. It's all his because he's Lord of all. And the same Jesus who died for all of you is now, by his grace, making all things new. And so in this dark and twisted world, we have a very beautiful Savior. We have a truly good Redeemer. So will you continue to walk with him when you're hurt or wounded? Will you, will you keep following him even when you're afraid? Can you continue to be faithful when you don't really know where he's taking you? That's called faith. Can we say as a church, like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.10, I want to know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's our call as sent ones to be faithful, to carry on that mission, serving him with whatever we got and wherever we are, no matter the cost. Let's pray.